Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. The National Centre for Cybersecurity recently declared that ransomware is the biggest threat facing the UK. Certainly, it's on the rise, fueled by ransomware as a service, the global pandemic, and even, some argue, cyber insurance. In this episode, I'm joined by three experts on ransomware. Steve Turner from Analyst Forrester, security consultant James Bohr, and James Rees, CISO and Director of Consultancy at Razorthorn. We asked Forrester's Steve Turner to start the discussion with his view of the current ransomware situation. A lot of the attacks that we're seeing out there kind of take two different forms. We're, we're seeing um, what we call commodity-based ransomware, where there's attackers that are looking for organizations that you know, maybe missed patching a system or they've got, you know, systems that are exposed to the internet that they're using attacks that are uh, kind of put together in a way that they can kind of click a button and execute that attack against an organization. Um, and, and those are fairly common. Those are the ones that we'd see, uh, you know, either executed against a business, uh, you know, even you at home, you know, where maybe you clicked on a phishing link um, or some sort of other mechanism. Then the flip side of that is that we're seeing another type of ransomware attack that's been rising in prevalence because it uh, makes the attackers much more money. Um, and that's this idea of the human-operated ransomware attack, where an attacker will scope out an organization, you know, look for a way in, um, kind of establish persistence within that organization. And then when they've gone and exfiltrated data that they can use for uh, a second type of ransom uh, later on, uh, they will go and execute the attack against that organization. Um, and what they'll do in that instance is that they'll uh, ask the organization for money and to unlock their systems because they've gone and encrypted or locked them out of their own systems. And then once the organization pays the money to unlock their systems, they'll ask them for a second payment, uh, threatening to leak the data that they've taken from that organization. And most of the attacks that we're seeing kind of take that double ransom approach. Um, and a lot of organizations, unfortunately, are, are put in a position where they need to pay uh, in order to get out of that. Um, on, the, on the other side of things, you know, we're seeing attackers target organizations where they know they're almost guaranteed to pay out. You know, organizations that you know, are part of critical infrastructure, like we saw with uh, the Colonial Pipeline attack. Um, and then, you know, even super, super recently, um, you know, there was an attack that was revealed against uh, a uh, water, uh, water processing plant within California um, that happened back in January. So, we're seeing that the attackers are going after the organizations that they know will have to pay out because they're providing critical services to their customers or, or to people, you know, within a state or a country. Um, and, you know, we're continuing to see those types of attacks increase because they're much more lucrative for attackers. And is that the driver? Is the driver still primarily financial? At the end of the day, all that these attackers care about is money. Um, you know, we've seen through you know various threat reports from from a lot of these organizations that publish, um, you know, their yearly kind of review of of what's going on out there. And most of the statistics say that these attacks are happening across industries. The attackers aren't picking a particular, you know, vertical, you know, financial services, uh, all of the critical infrastructure, you know, power, water, um, you know, uh, media, you know, they're not picking one indiscriminately. They're actually just targeting companies within all of those verticals, organizations within those verticals. Um, that are going to pay the most money because what we found throughout the years is the reason that the threat has been rising is these ransomware attackers 
are getting more and more well-funded. They're, they're, some of these attackers are more well-funded than um, entire nations with the infrastructure and the resources they have access to. So the almighty dollar at the end of the day is what's attracting these folks to continue executing these attacks. So from an international perspective, as you're based in, in the States, Steve, but um, what about looking at it across borders? Are we seeing a consistent picture internationally? So, yes, it, it, it definitely is. Um, you know, we're seeing, you know, to, to go back to that kind of critical infrastructure piece, kind of bleeding out from that is, you know, the manufacturing sector, right? We've seen uh, companies in the APAC region be attacked uh, because they know at the end of the day that those, those companies need their facilities that are processing or making maybe uh, semiconductors, computer components. You know, they, they need those facilities to make money, um, you know, but we're also seeing those attacks in Europe and, uh, and the rest of Asia as well. It's, it, again, it's not isolated to one country. So, James, James Reese, firstly, is that largely the same picture you're seeing? Absolutely. And and I think, you know, Steve's absolutely correct on this. There are all different types of companies from all different sectors that are, are being a hit in the same way. And I think at the, at the moment, it's very much a scattergun approach, you know, go out there try and get in and see what you can do. But I, I do feel that it's starting or it will start to become a lot more targeted. You know, they'll specifically be going for organizations that have either paid ransoms before, that they know are weak, that have specific types of information that would be really damaging to get out. I mean, the legal sector, for instance, is a good example. You know, we, we had the Panama Papers a number of years ago. I mean, that was an insider releasing the information. What if one of these, these uh, you know, large law firms got d- done over in the same way from the ransomware guys? You know, it would be eminently more damaging. Um, and then all you're going to see is you're going to suddenly see all the different groups who are doing this starting to really focus and target on areas where they know they're going to make money. And I totally agree with Steve. There's been a lot of rhetoric, you know, what's this all about? Is this about, you know, something to do with a nationality, you know, a national group being well-funded doing this? I don't think that is the case at all. I think this is completely about money. That's all they care about. And they will just go for whoever they know is going to pay. Um, we're seeing massive um, cases. I mean, big reinsurance firms who shall remain nameless, good example, $40 million reported, $40 million. And Steve is absolutely right. That's that's more than most organizations would even conceive of thinking about spending on security. I wouldn't even spend a quarter of that on security. Um, and these groups, uh, as well-funded as they are, you know, they will secure themselves with some of that income because they're on the line to go to prison you know they're on the line to to have their lives totally destroyed so why wouldn't they well fund themselves to go out off and springboard more targeted attacks more um sophisticated attacks against targets that are, are feasibly weak that's my opinion anyway thank you and james borum do you agree uh, largely yes it's it's an industry it's a business and they will quite happily go wherever the money is and wherever they can get money. And we've not reached the point where, let's say, the ransomware market is saturated. There's a lot of space for it to grow with these undirected attacks where it's just spamming out as many as they can. But as James and Steve have said, these more targeted ones are becoming more and more common because they're more profitable, they're safer, they're less undirected. And it is going to be that more bespoke type of attack with deliberately chosen customers, thats it makes more money. It's where the industry is going to go. So do you think this is a permanent shift in the way that cybersecurity will operate? This is a feature of cyber attack that is here to stay. I don't think it's a shift. We've known about these sorts of attacks. There is no difference in what we should be doing to combat them effectively. So it's not a shift as such it's a shift in the awareness it's a shift in the attackers approach to extracting funds but the actual vulnerabilities the actual attack vectors they are using to get in 
are unchanged. I think that's a key thing, isn't it? That it is a key element that actually the vulnerabilities are being exploited here are often well-established, well-known and largely ones that could be patched. Absolutely. I, t- I completely agree with James that, the you know, the method of attack has really not changed that much. You know, they find vulnerabilities, they get in, they fingerprint the systems, they figure out sort of, you know, the administrative accounts, that kind of thing, and they drop their malware in, run it, boom, you, you know, you're encrypted. Uh, I think they're... Their method of, de- you know, their method of delivery hasn't changed, but I do think the tactics that they are using um, have significantly changed from where they were a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, you know, they target things like credit card numbers that they knew they could sell. They would, you know, sort of target high-value data, whereas now it seems to be they're grabbing as much as possible. And what they do is they exfiltrate that data out, as Steve mentioned in, in the first piece. Um they, uh, but what they're doing is they're sifting through that data and saying, right, okay, where's the where's the slightly damaging stuff? What's the what can we release out into the public to prove that we have sensitive data that will scare that organisation enough to to say just have the money, just take the money, don't release it, and give us our decryptor, you know. That is a big change from from where we were five years ago, and I don't think this is going away. I think this is this is going to be the mode of attack now for most malicious actors um, and criminal groups um, across the world. You know, they've seen the money; they're not going to back away from it. They're not going to change that tactic. They will adapt them, but they're not going to change it now. That's it. It's it's here to stay. It's another avenue that they can make significant amounts of money beyond selling card information on the underground or on the dark web. And as we've already touched on as well, some of that money is being reinvested back into the criminal infrastructure that supports this. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people don't realize like there, there's two fronts to this, right? A lot of people, I, I think in the public consciousness, a lot of people probably don't realize that these attacks have continued since we heard about the headlining news around not Petya and, and all of the kind of related organizations that were kind of taken down by that. So ransomware never went away. You know, it's it's only evolved like like James just mentioned, you know, and and the initial vectors and and how they're spreading within organizations and what they're even taking, you know, and and executing on what they're taking is getting to be a point where they can push organizations harder to, to pay. But the, the other kind of side of this is that, um, you know, they're, they, this all initially evolved. I think a lot of people don't realize it all initially evolved from things as basic as like scareware, where folks would get pop-ups on their screens saying, your computer's been infected by a virus, you know, pay now in order to, to make sure that your, your system's cleaned or your computer is now infected, call this number and you need to pay in order to, to unlock your system, even though nothing actually happened. And then it transformed into to ransomware, which didn't work all that well. It wouldn't even encrypt the targets in, in some instances. And now we've got this super ultra sophisticated like chain of attackers that they're going and purchasing the security solutions that we all are are chasing after to protect ourselves at the end of the day. So, you know, they're just as well informed, if not more well informed than a lot of organizations out there, again, because they've got the almighty, like, you know, deep pocketbooks, you know, available to them compared to an organization that's maybe, like James mentioned, spending a third of what you know these attackers have at their disposal i suppose it's quite a clear calculation that there's a return on investment for the uh, the criminal groups here the malicious hackers here there's two parts to it so obviously steve just mentioned that these aren't new the first ransomware that used encryption was 1989 none of this is new at all it's it's old this is yes it sort of evolved from scareware but ransomware was around before internet-based scareware and the second part is i've seen the figures i don't know the provenance of them i don't know how accurate they are but there's an estimate that the cybersecurity industry globally is worth about 250 billion dollars meanwhile the cybercrime industry 
is estimated to be somewhere between one and $10 trillion. So that essentially means that companies are choosing to spend at least four times as much on cybercrime than on preventing it. An interesting thing that I don't want to get too um, too bogged down in the it can be a bit of a rabbit hole some of the the law enforcement side of it, uh, but what we what we are certainly seeing is that organised crime is shifting into what sometimes law enforcement describes as cyber enabled crime rather than cyber crime itself. The internet is a, is a way of attacking or carrying out other exploits or carrying out other criminal activity rather than the end in itself. Um, so we might come back to that if we have time, but that's just to, just to frame my next question really, which was to, um, and I'll, I'll go firstly to James Bohr, but what steps do we need to be taking to counter this? And, and from the beginning to the end, you know, right from security awareness and threat intelligence through to remediation, a business recovery, and uh, running to the backups, what are you seeing people do that's successful and what perhaps works less well and what should they be doing? What should organisations be doing uh, to try to defend against this? So the the things that I've seen not working tend to be uh, very expensive technical solutions that are put in place and then never really used. What I've seen work are, again, it's old principles. It's applying things like least privilege. It's properly training in security awareness it's segregating your network and limiting access between nodes on your network decentralizing distributing so that even if you do get an exploit it's limited lateral movement is harder none of this stuff is new at all Uh, back in the 90s we were talking about allow listing software so only authorized software could run and a few people did it and it was devastatingly effective but it didn't catch on because it was too much work up front it requires a lot of thought it requires a lot of design and effort put into that preventative side of things and it's not convenient a lot of the time it it does slow things down so the right thing to do is to do that security by design to apply those solid well-established principles and to make sure people are aware and trained properly and know that they can report an incident, they can escalate it, who they need to talk to. I just don't see enough of that going on. I completely agree with with James and what he said. I think in a, you know, defense in depth of your infrastructure, knowing your infrastructure, you know, dealing with things like patching, dealing with things like, you know, older shadow technology, which we know is still around in a lot of networks, especially the older networks. I mean, one of the the guy, one of the organizations that got done over with this was, you know, it was an old VPN. You know, why was it there? Why was it still enabled? Why was it still accepting connections? You know, if it's old and it's not used as they said it was, why is it still there? But I think, you know, to, to add to that, um, the pandemic that we're all going through at the moment, which there never seems to be any kind of end in sight, it seems to be going in cycles, has meant that the way that we consume our technology um, and the way that we're running our employees and where they're working and all the rest of it is pushing out the boundaries of that network endpoint to pretty much everybody's bedroom, to everybody's study, to everybody's kitchen table. And the vectors of, of, of you know, potential vectors for these malicious actors to come in on is dramatically increasing. We went from very much centralizing a lot of our security because we had offices. Yeah, you had a few remote workers and that kind of thing, but but nowhere near as many as you have now. And by all accounts from the, a lot of the larger businesses, the, the remote working capability is here to stay and they're going to be doing that. So I think what we need to do is we, we're hitting a point where we need to have a bit of a paradigm shift in our thought patterns as information security professionals and review the security that we currently have in place and whether or not it's fit for purpose to, to cater for some of this these particular challenges we're having at the moment. And I think what I'm seeing with a lot of my clients and with a lot of conversations that I'm having, a massive resurgence in um, encryption and making sure it's appropriately implemented encryption. Because these guys who are exfiltrating out this data are reliant on the fact that they can access it. 
if you put into place more modern forms of encryption, um, you know, through certain products, there are a number of them out there. There's one or two very good ones. Then you can do a lot. To, yes, they can get in. Yes, they can drop in back doors. Yes, they can do all kinds of funky things in your infrastructure. But if they can't access the keys to decrypt the data, it is gobbledygook. It is there. There's nothing they can do. They can't sift through it. They can't threaten you with it. You can basically turn around to them and say, yeah, you've caused us pain. By all means, release the data. But you can't access it, of course, if they have already got the keys because you haven't implemented your um, your encryption properly, um, then you're you're kind of screwed, you're stuffed. Um, but if you have implemented it properly, it is that last ditch defense. It is the literally last part of your defense in depth. You've gotten everything, you've gotten in, you've got put your back doors in. We can we can recover from that. It's going to be expensive. But what we can't recover is the dirty laundry, you know, being put out onto the internet. I mean, look at the Sony hack years ago where they released all the emails from the executives about certain celebrities and their thoughts on certain celebrities. And the damage to that organization um, was catastrophic in many respects. And it took them a lot of PR, a lot of, you know, recovery time uh not just technologically speaking to figure out how these people got in but but to recover from the fact that you know all their dirty laundry had been aired same with the panama papers um you know encryption is a very very good way of 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 protecting yourself against your data being read and i think this is really a key aspect to think about at the moment along with your endpoint along with your ids ips you know that is where I, I currently sit with it. I don't know what, what everybody else's thoughts are. Yeah, so uh, I agree with, uh, I definitely agree with both of you. Uh, I think the I think the mistake that, that we've been making within the industry and, and literally everybody seems to have an opinion about this and, and kind of just, just parrots it, very different compared to what we're talking about here. Because I think what we're talking about here is very prescriptive, right? Um, after all of these attacks happen, everybody, you know, kind of out there put out different blog posts and different like information on what organizations could do to, to not end up like the next person. But they were very quick to say, implement multi-factor, implement a robust backup strategy. But, you know, to, to, to the point of kind of like what the original question was here, you know, what are the fundamentals and, you know, what do they kind of mean? I mean, we have to dig into the details to be more, more prescriptive with what organizations can actually do and help them prioritize. Cause uh, like James Bohr mentioned, you know, a lot of companies are throwing technical solutions at the problems when at the end of the day, it may just be a configuration that they need to turn on with their existing tool sets, or it may be processes that they don't have in place, like having like an incident response plan to know what to do when they get infected at the end of the day to stop an attack from spreading. I think that um, as an industry, we need to get more prescriptive about what we're suggesting organizations do. And it needs to apply way beyond the technical realm. We need to talk about processes, maybe skill sets. You know, there, there's a lot of different areas we need to, to attack and we need to define what those fundamentals are that all organizations can do. Because it, it's really easy for, for all of us here and, and, you know, especially the folks that have just kind of taken the, the very basic approach of tweeting or, or blogging out, you know, implement multi-factor without understanding that implementing multi-factor is extremely difficult for a lot of organizations, but it is a really, really good control for preventing yourself from becoming the next headlining, you know, organization out there that's been taken down by ransomware. And James Reese, I loved your point about encryption. It's, I think that that's a super valuable thing that organizations can do so that even if they, they hit, get hit up, you know, doubly, you know, around between the data being taken out of the organization or being double encrypted because the organization's already encrypting the information, it's not really going to matter because, if they're doing their backups appropriately and they're they're backing up their data, they're storing those backups offline, um, and they're able to recover very quickly because they have all the processes built out for that, 
and all of the data is encrypted, it's not really going to matter when the attacker inevitably takes it because, you know, it's going to be useless to them. Um, you know, but I'm I'm definitely personally I'm very tired of hearing you know people scream out their fundamentals, fundamentals, security hygiene, security hygiene, but not define what those things mean for organizations because that's that's you know we're we're back to square one because again we haven't given them that prescriptive pragmatic information that they need in order to better their their security posture. And from your research, Steve, just to just to clarify on statistics, from your research, do you have a, a feeling for how many organisations actually don't have uh, a ransomware prevention strategy, uh, or indeed what percentage do? And then I'll come to James. Yeah, so so I don't have um, I don't have those direct numbers, but we actually recently did a survey where quite a number of organisations uh, answered about whether they had like an incident response strategy. Um, and then a follow-up question about how often are they updating that? And, you know, when we did that survey, it is stark. The number of organizations that, that you know, they have a strategy, maybe they did a consulting engagement, maybe they created one because it was a part of the, a checklist exercise, but the number of organizations not updating it and not dusting it off to, to run through it on a regular basis, either through a simulation or a tabletop exercise is, uh, is alarming. And, and kind of paired with that, we did another survey where we asked organizations what is their top number one thing to prevent against ransomware. And I guess the, uh, the person in me being, being very hopeful was hoping that the answer was going to come back as a, a very, very good backup and recovery strategy. And that was not the case. That was not the the number one control that people rated, you know, as as their life saving thing that was going to you know prevent them from from being the next headline. Um, it was you know another technology, which which is disappointing, right? Because that means again we just haven't informed folks, you know, about the right things to prioritize. Because at the end of the day. Um, you know, like I, I believe everybody has been kind of hinting at here is we need to assume that our organization is going to be breached. And when that breach inevitably happens, how are we going to be able to recover or contain that breach? And, you know, uh, there's a lot of organizations that don't understand that prioritization piece. James, you were going to come in on that. Yeah, I'm going to make one other point before I get onto the one I was going to say. I think this narrative that we have to assume a breach is going to happen is a real problem. I think it's fatalistic and it gives the impression that you cannot do adequate, appropriate security, which you absolutely can. It's hard to do, but I think saying, oh, you just have to accept that a breach will happen and put your effort into responding to that makes people give up on security by design on doing the proactive stuff that will help to prevent these. So I've, I've always had a bit of a problem with that idea and don't like it. But the other thing I was going to say was uh, because Steve mentioned back to square one, and there's a very easy question to tell where your response to ransomware or anything else might be, which is if you can give the honest answer that you have asset management to a level where you understand what information and what assets are across your whole business with a reasonable degree of accuracy, you are way beyond where most people are and you are then ready to really start preventing things by applying encryption, by applying security where you need it. If you've got, say, only 90% coverage, encryption will help for that 90% you can see and it's going to do nothing for the 10% that's drifted outside asset management. The same with MFA, the same with anything that you try to apply. If you don't know the terrain you're working with, you are going to find it, it gets compromised. Let's just look then at, at potentially what the barriers are. And is the issue here that the preventative and protection and even the recovery measures are difficult or expensive or even both? That's a very good question. Um Security doesn't need to be expensive. It just needs to be effective. You know, um, you can go out and you can purchase all kinds of nice and expensive products. I think James mentioned it earlier on. Um, 
you know, and they can sit on a shelf, they can go nowhere and do nothing. And I've certainly been to a number of organizations to do security reviews and to help them out with problems and so on and so forth and found quite commonly they have purchased things like IDS, IPS, and it's still in learning mode or it's not been tuned, it's not been been working properly. I mean, an organization, just to kind of touch on something that James mentioned in, in, in the previous piece, every organization is like a, a an organism. Okay, you have the heart, you have the lungs, you have the sales department, you've got the finance department, you've got the journalists, whatever type of organization you're in has its own genetic makeup, its own DNA. Information security is very much the immune system, you know, and for the immune system to efficiently and effectively work, it has to understand as much about the rest of the business as possible. So you can build your defensive countermeasures um, appropriately and reasonably to be able to cater for the type of organization that you're protecting. You know, the way that you protect an organization such as Amazon, for instance, is going to be very different from the way that you protect an organization such as Bombardier or somebody, you know, a pharmaceutical company with with significant amounts of IP. You know, and, and James put it really nicely as well um, about understanding where your assets are, your data assets, um, you know, the revenue streams, how the revenue streams work, and all of this comes into that understanding. Now, you can go out and you can spend a large amount on security and potentially achieve nothing. Um, you know, there's a lot of vendors who put out a lot of kind of marketing material. You see it time and time again when the new, you know, the new best latest thing comes out like when gdpr first started to to become a thing and looked like it was actually going to go in there were vendors chucking up all kinds of marketing saying we can protect you from gdpr problems and so on and so forth and and you've got to kind of push away a lot of that vendor kool-aid that they're trying to get you to drink um, and engage with proper experienced information security professionals who understand that there's a people element to security. There's a technical element to security. There's a policy and procedural element to security and the, an understanding of how the business works. You know, a famous quote from way back is the first rule of business is protect your investment. And unfortunately, I think the, the, the us humans as a species are very quick to go in to, to make the money, to take advantage of the situation, to, to capitalize on whatever it is our goals are. We, we're not very good at securing that asset and that revenue stream afterwards. We think that the, the money printer is going to continue to print and we're going to continue to make something out of whatever that asset is. Now, we all know that that's not the case. We've seen that various different bubbles burst over the years. But security and the principles of security, and again, as James very adequately pointed out earlier on, they don't change, okay? The way malicious actors attack change, the tactics they use change, maybe some of the, the way that, the, the, you know, that they develop changes, but the basic principles of security are still there. But in order to apply them, you have to understand your environment. And for any business people out there listening, you know, engage with an information security professional to, to fingerprint and build a view of your business and what's important and the assets and what makes it up to, to talk to the business people within that business and understand how that organization works from the top at the executive level all the way through down to the very ground level where the people who do the day-to-day -day stuff um, see it, you know, because you get different views from all around the business. If you do that and you build your defense in depth and you use the principles of information security, um, you can build yourself a really compelling and, and strategically secure environment that, yeah, you're never going to hit 100% security, but you can make it very, very difficult for anybody coming in to try to take advantage of you. Um, and with good incident response, even if they do take advantage of you, you can recover from it. Um, Steve put some some very good points about, you know, sitting around a table, wargaming through incidents or issues or whatever, and be take a leaf out of role players who played D&D &D for this one, put people in situations that you wouldn't necessarily normally happen, but you get the, the people's mindset into how to recover, what to look for, the kinds of things that they would, 
experience. You know, you can roll them through it. Um, and from there you can, you know, build your picture, you can build your defense in depth and you can, you can do your best to secure that, that organization. Um, but you also do have to review it on a regular basis. And I do see a lot of organizations who put a load of security in say 10 years ago, and they still think that same security layer is going to work in, in today's world. And whilst the principles are probably still, still solid, you do need to adapt. You need to change. Like that immune system, it adapts in accordance with with the organ, you know, the organism as it tracks its way through its existence. We have to do the same thing, and that's why security is a very, very important and difficult discipline to get completely right. I don't know what anyone else's thoughts are on that. Well, I was going to ask um, James if uh, if you could. Um come in on this but from an angle of picking up on something that James just said there is part of the problem that organizations invest in security and then they say okay that's security done now let's go and do something else and they fail to review keep it under review update and even reconfigure as they go along as the threat changes I'd almost hesitate to use the term invest organizations buy security and they think that's sufficient and what you have to do is actually invest in it in the same way you invest in any other quality or aspect for your company that you want to grow and develop and make use of. You invest in your development capability, and that means training your developers. It means putting the right tools, processes in place so that they are then empowered to do more things. You invest in your finance teams so that they can deal with a larger organization. They can get better at spotting any fraud, any money laundering, any embezzlement issues. You invest in all of these different things, and yet organizations often just try to buy security and Vendors, many vendors don't help with this because they give the impression that you can buy a solution and then it's solved. Yeah, absolutely. And we do we do see that. And we see that in business continuity and disaster recovery as well. A plan is developed. It, sometimes it's tested, sometimes it isn't. But most of the time it ends up on a shelf and the next time it's reviewed is after the disaster struck and it's too late. But I just want to change tack slightly now for um, the last few minutes of this podcast episode, um, just to pick up on something that uh, I know um, Forrester has been looking at and uh, potentially it is more broadly applicable than that. But Steve, uh, you're calling on governments to do more to deter ransomware. Uh, why is it something that you feel governments should be involved in? And why do you think that government action could be effective here? So it's a very interesting area, right? You know, we're, we're all talking about what organizations can do and, and, and that only goes so far, you know, so way earlier in the, in the conversation, you know, we talked about how well-funded these attackers are and everything and how they continue to, to plague, you know, all these, these respective organizations out there that, that were kind of given this advice on, on how they can do better. But the problem is, you know, there needs to be some level of this that's dealt even further upstream, right? You know, so we know that there's entire organizations, uh, you know, backed by, by a whole no host of people that are executing these attacks. And at the end of the day, you know, very similar to a lot of other crimes out there, they're very reliant on their revenue streams or the, the money that they're, they're stealing or, or coercing from these organizations on, on their operations continuing. So, you know, uh, the view here is that if we can attack the problem further upstream, you know, we can, we can help, you know, a, you know, address the problem from multiple fronts, you know, whether that be legislation um, requiring companies to have uh, a certain security maturity within their organizations or implement some of the, the, the key technologies that, that we believe that help um, these organizations have a better fighting chance um, at not initially getting infected or containing um, an attack that, that's kind of been executed against them. And we've seen multiple national governments put out papers or memos or communications to businesses, you know, within, within these respective countries suggesting these things, right? And, and, but that's the problem. It is, it is just a suggestion. Um, but the other front of this 
is, uh, I don't want to say necessarily going on the offensive because I don't think that's completely the right thing. Um, but for lack of a better term, um, governments going on the offensive to take down these operations um, or make it extremely difficult for them to collect you know, these, these payments that they're, they're asking as, as ransom, you know, for, from these organizations would be another, you know, avenue for, for taking down or or restricting how many of these attacks are going on. But that being said, it's very much like, you know, um, like in, in a lot of the storybooks and a lot of history that we read, you know, it's like a hydra, you know, you cut off one head and three will grow. That's very much what we're seeing. You know, they take down, you know, we saw, you know, a few groups get attacked or, or taken down or voluntarily take their operations down, but they're just rebranding themselves to get around sanctions or they're, you know, just popping up in a, in a different form to, to, you know, basically make it look like there's just a new group popping up. But, you know, uh, a lot of folks talk about, you know, outlawing, you know, organizations from paying the ransom. I don't think that fully addresses the problem. The, there has to be a different legislative or, or government angle that we can attack the problem again, more upstream, you know, when it comes to, you know, them collecting on all of all of those funds. So James Reese and James Bull, do you feel that government intervention in this space is is likely? I know we saw recently uh, the NCSC in the UK was saying that ransomware is the biggest threat to businesses um, at the moment. But is government intervention, legislation and law enforcement part of the answer here? I do agree with what they said about it being one of the biggest threats. You're looking at, I forget the exact number, but roughly half of small businesses that have a ransomware attack end up closing within six months. The impact there can't really be overstated. If you work for or run a small business and have a ransomware attack, it's a flip of a coin whether you're going to survive another six months. In terms of the government intervention and law enforcement, I think it's very unlikely there is going to be successful intervention anytime soon because it is a difficult and complicated area. It really is. There's ethical issues all over the place. There were suggestions of making paying ransoms illegal, which then says, well, we're not going to report incidents. So it it needs a delicate touch. And I don't think government or law enforcement are necessarily the right places for that to come from. I totally agree, James. Um, I don't think um, our current police force or enforcement agencies, no matter who they are, are are geared up for this kind of thing. Um, And James is absolutely right. You know, if they they legislate that it's illegal to pay the ransom, then they're just not going to tell anyone about it. You know, um, these are people's livelihoods. These are... These are people's businesses, you know, they don't want them to go under. They want to, to be able to pay the staff who can look after the children, look after the families, you know, who can sort of pay for college or university or whatever, whichever part of the, of the pond you're on. Um, and I don't think that the governments are going to be able to make even a single dent on any of this. I mean, this is all being done internationally. People are very good at hiding. Okay, some people are going to get caught. They always do. And they're going to make a big, big thing of it in the media. But these guys are here to stay. And the really good malicious actors, as, as, as I term them, as a kind of catch-all, they're never going to get caught. These are too well-funded. Organized crime can come into this as well, um, you know, and we can all see over time how how efficiently and effectively law enforcement has been, in, you know, preventing, you know, even the drug trade. It still continues. Okay, people get caught, but it carries on and it keeps churning. It's far too profitable for people to walk away from it. It was mentioned earlier on, you know, the cost of cyber crimes between one and ten trillion dollars, you know, at the moment it's going to get worse. It's going to get a hell of a lot worse. Um, And I don't think the business community can kind of push security aside anymore or the investment in security aside, as, as James mentioned earlier on, because if they do do that, they're just asking for trouble. You're going to end up being caught out and you're going to end up in this kind of situation. 
and that's your business. It's gone. You know, the smaller the company, the harder it is to recover. But equally, the bigger the company, the more PR you get, and the the more you have to spend on on recovery, not just from the technical sense and the fact that you've lost your data, but but as I mentioned before, from the PR perspective, um, these people aren't going to get caught anytime soon. Not if they know what they're doing. And let's face it, when you've got $40 million ransoms, $5 million ransoms, $10 million ransoms, that's a lot of money that you can put into not getting caught. The onus on them to protect themselves is much higher than maybe, you know, the legitimate businesses out there that they want to do security quite often. They don't necessarily know how to do it, but they don't want to spend, you know, their their income their profits on what if it's like insurance nobody sees the benefits of fire insurance until you've had a fire then it's the cheapest thing you ever got involved with but until you have that issue it it's very easy for us as humans to turn around and say that'll never happen to me and then of course it does does that make sense it does and so i think i've done really well so far and i haven't mentioned the pandemic I've been trying hard not to, and I think we're we're over half an hour into the podcast, and I, I, I've been trying hard not to. But to borrow a phrase from that, is ransomware something that we just have to live with? To a point, but I think James mentioned something uh, when he brought up insurance. And one thing I think is really important is that effectively, to a degree, the insurance industry has been subsidising the ransomware industry by paying out for these larger ransoms. And there are known cases where the ransom has been set at a couple of pounds less than the limit of that insurance policy. So while it's not necessarily a legislative fix, I do think there is potential in insurers just saying, we will no longer pay out for ransoms unless you have you can prove to us that you have taken every reasonable precaution, maybe not even then. I know that AXA, for example, have announced that they are no longer going to underwrite any policies which pay out for ransoms. So that, I think, could be a significant drop in revenue for the ransomware industry. And that would have a consequent effect where it's going to reduce because there's less money to be made they will find some other way some other form of crime instead so some grounds for optimism there perhaps but is it something that you you feel will just be part of cybersecurity in the future it's just another thing we have to deal with we we still get phishing emails saying that there's a print somewhere with 49 million pounds that that or dollars or whatever it is that they want sent nothing goes away completely there's always going to be an element of it james reese oh where to begin on this one it's here it's it's not going anywhere it's not going anywhere soon you know this has been proven to be profitable um it's going to continue to be profitable okay it might drop a little bit as as james pointed out you know if if insurers are, are not insuring against ransomware, but it's still going to be a significant revenue stream for these criminal gangs. It's it's Ransom has been around since, I don't know, we were crawling around and thudding things over the head, you know, with a bone, um, you know, pay a portion of your kill and we won't come in and kick your tribe out, you know, or words to that effect. Um, it's, it's never going to go away. It's just a valid tactic and it pays and people have, have experienced the the lucrative payouts that come with doing this and they will continue to do it. It'll become a standard attack pattern um, that we see time and time again being developed as security professionals. And Steve? So I agree with both of them, right? Um, I, I think that... We've seen these types of attacks evolve over time and in ways, shape, or forms that they're executed and ultimately, you know, how or what's being required to pay, you know, in order to continue to fund the organizations doing this. Um, I think just to to dial into something that, that James Moore mentioned uh, earlier, you know, we have to adapt around this. These these things aren't going away um, anytime soon. And beyond organizations 
you know, taking the approach of buying security, they need to invest in security. And, you know, here at Forrester, you know, we've seen through our research and through our surveys that people are allocating more budget towards security. But I think that, again, to, to just harp on the, the point that, that James Moore mentioned earlier, people need to invest in security. We need to upskill folks. We need to bleed security into the consciousness uh, across the organization outside of the, the traditional technical security realm. And we also need to implement security models that adapt you know, with the way that our organizations or businesses are functioning. I think without that, we, we don't really have a fighting chance, you know, uh, against all this. And, uh, and, and like, uh, like James Bohr mentioned, uh, I'll, I'll agree to disagree on this front, but, um, you know, I think the mentality of assuming breach, yes, does definitely have a, um, a defeatist mentality attached to it. Um, but to the point that he made, which I think was a fantastic point, is that organizations shouldn't feel like giving up. They should go back to square one, like we mentioned with asset management and build their way re or rebuild their way back up from there, because we all can do better around security. It just is whether we have the will or um, the wherewithal to recognize whether we're doing it poorly or not and be willing to pour the resources, time and effort into the people processes and then ultimately the technology to enable us to protect ourselves. So ransomware is not going away. It might even become more difficult to deal with. But at the same time, if organisations invest in security and pay attention to the basics, and if governments make it harder to profit from this type of cybercrime, it could be something that we learn to live with. That, though, is all for this edition of Security Insights. Our next episode will be on Wednesday, July the 21st, when we'll be hearing about a new identity initiative from the Alan Turing Institute. We hope you can join us then. And don't forget to subscribe to Security Insights on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon or Spotify, and to bookmark the website securityinsights.co.uk. Thanks again to our guests today, Steve Turner, James Bohr and James Rees. And as ever, thank you for listening. <laughs>